0: Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh,
2: can I please have your attention? Can you it?
1: Okay, so um, as I threaten, um, and I promise we're not going to do this a lot, I'm on quite a few podcasts where. You never hear about it, um, but I really enjoyed my conversation with Eli Lake. Eli's one of my favorite writers, and he asked some questions that I think a lot of people have of how I approach this stuff, or how do I justify my approach, or what the hell's going on with me, that kind of thing. I found it useful to have someone prying that stuff out of me, and got a lot of great feedback. He's got this great podcast called uh, The Re-Education, and... I want to help him, so that's part of the reason why we're doing this. Is you know, sort of cross promotion kind of thing. We're re-releasing as a remnant our conversation promises again. We're not going to make it a regular thing of doing this kind of thing, but just so it happens. The timing um, made sense, and we've had such a busy time over the holidays and with our end of year meetings that it's just it's also just good content. So listen to this, and then if you like Eli's approach of stuff. Become a subscriber to the re-education as well. Oh, and there will not be a no you won't, this is a podcast close to this episode or even a close from me because again, it's not my podcast. So uh however Eli ends his podcast, um, maybe he says next year in Jerusalem. I don't know. That's the way it's gonna be. So thanks to Eli and thank you and I'll see you next time.
2: Well, we are really lucky today to have a great guest, author of the very underrated book, The Tyranny of Clichés, not to mention Liberal <laughs> Fascism and Suicide of the West, author of The G-File, which you should be reading, and founding editor of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg. Thanks so much for coming on The Re-Education. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure, Eli. Yeah, it's been great. So the reason I wanted to have you on is because it looks like if the polling is correct, which is always a big if, there's there's no stopping Trump in the Republican primaries and a lot of our mutual friends have been warning us again. What if Trump wins again, American tyranny. And, you know, I think that there, there is a lot of fair critique, obviously of this prospect, but there's a bit of, how would I put this? One wonders if some of these people who are writing for the Atlantic are aware that if you're worried about weaponizing government or worried about these kinds of things, and there's a lot of bad behavior to go around on both sides. So with that in mind, first of all, do you think at this point Trump is inevitable?
1: Okay, so as the, the nominee not not winning the election. Yeah. putting on my pundit hat. Yeah. I think you'd be crazy if you had to bet a lot of money, you know, mortgage plus kind of money, not to bet he's the nominee, right? I mean, it's right. just like you can you can tell yourself stories all you like but it's he's, it looks pretty clear, particularly in the wake of this Iowa poll where he surged more than DeSantis did after DeSantis got the governor's endorsement and had two good ba- debate performances, one against Gavin Newsom, one against the field, minus Trump. And Trump does better after all that. Uh, it, it's very hard to see how he's not the nominee. That said, or, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry, it's not hard to see how he's not the nominee. It's just Hard to see how that's not extremely unlikely, (laughs) but I can come up with scenarios where I still think it's possible. I don't think, you know, all hope is lost or anything like that, but people are kidding themselves if they, if, if they don't realize they're really basically hoping for a deus ex machina on this. Right.
2: Okay. So we, you know, what's the line? There's a, you're telling me there's a chance, Um, (laughs) right? (laughs) But okay. So that's the political punditry, but I kind of want to get into this deeper question you and I are in agreement that the the, the the behavior of Trump, whether he believed it or not, after losing the election was despicable and a grave assault on peaceful transition of power and all of that. And that's why I've you know, been very consistent. I will never vote for somebody who I do not trust to to accept the results of an election that he or she loses. But that said, there seems to be a fair critique that, Trump has been treated as this sort of existential threat to the Republic since he won, you know, the election in 2016. And in, if you accept the, this assumption kind of going back, then it's been a permission structure for a lot of his opponents to do things that they normally wouldn't do. So if you're on the center right as we are, how do you kind of, I don't know, bat- walk this jagged path of Trump is of danger? But the resistance to Trump is a danger.
1: Yeah, and so I think,
2: I mean, obviously, and I don't want to say I'm equating them. I'm just saying, how do you yeah, yeah. navigate it?
1: Yeah, I, 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 I think that's that's a. Let's start with the equating thing. I, I think it's a good point and worth keeping in mind on all sorts of fronts. There can be problems with the left, and there can be problems with the right. I think we would both agree there are. Yeah, that there's nothing intellectually wrong, never mind indefensible with being a both sideser. As long as you acknowledge that the both sides thing is not symmetrical. So yes, there is anti-Semitism on the right. It bothers me a great deal. I've been pushing back on it for a very long time, right? It's kind of broken the banks in recent years, I think, thanks to social media and some other things. There's also anti-Semitism on the left. Now, you could say, I have no problem with saying I may not agree with it, but I, there's a defensible case to be made that the anti-Semitism on the right is worse because some of it is like explicitly like Hitler memeing and and that kind of stuff, right? Okay, fine. My point is, is that these things are not symmetrical. The The places, the institutions where the left holds power are much more important culturally, societally, politically than the places where the right holds power. If If a idiotic would-be brown shirt who's got Cheeto-stained fingers is posting stuff on YouTube, that's different than a tenured professor doing it. Even if what the tenured professor says is more intellectually sophisticated and maybe arguably more defensible in some, according to some calculation, the, the asymmetry of power is worth paying attention to. The left controls virtually all of the major institutions, cultural institutions of power, the commanding heights of the culture, Hollywood, publishing, journalism, education, you can go down a long list, and that might take some of their radical edge off, right? Because, you know, Ibram Kendi is not going to call for, you know, white genocide if it's going to cost him his Netflix special, but the fact that he gets a Netflix special (laughs) tells you something, right? And so you have to keep these things in mind. Similarly, not to put the pundit hat back on, Republican Party is a clown show these days with huge problems. The democratic party is also a hot mess. Both parties have problems. They're not, some of them are the same problems because they're derivative of the fact that our parties are too weak and we've done idiotic things with primaries, but some of them are, some of the problems are different because there are different ideological commitments in both parties and different coalitional investments and, and, and relationships that make them different. But what I cannot stand is when I say, and I get this from all sides, I get people, fans, newfound fans of mine on the left, we get furious at me when I point out problems with the left and I get, you know, old fans on the right who are like, why are you, you know, shooting inside the tent kind of thing. And the fact is, is that one of the ways you navigate this is by not caring, by just sort of rejecting popular front arguments. I hate popular fronts, always have. And I, you know, the old no enemies to the left or no enemies to the right kind of arguments, I think, are the bane of intellectual honesty. And if you can, and that's very difficult to shed in this environment because two party system, it's a binary choice, yada, yada, yada. My, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and all these kinds of things. And also, the the, both sides believe the stakes
2: are existential.
1: Right. And so when they think they're existential, they think that, you know, a, 70% 70% friend is a 30% enemy. And and you get all the whataboutism kind of yeah. stuff. And my problem with whataboutism is that I'm perfectly willing to concede when people say, well, what about the New York Times? Or what about, you know, you know, right. whatever. And I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. It doesn't mean that Donald Trump is good. <laughs> if you want to well, point um, to something else that's bad.
2: Absolutely. But what I want to try to get at is, I mean, it seems that if you warn that if Trump is elected, it will be a dictatorship. First of mm-hmm. all, there's a downstream effect, it seems, right? That I don't think Robert Kagan would ever, you know, pick up a brick and throw it through a window. But there might be, right. there could be an effect of people who, yep. you know, feel that things are so bad and, and, and you know, like, listen, I, I see it, nobody else does. I'm going to do something extraordinary and horrible. As we saw that guy who, who shot up the congressional baseball game You know, I would never blame Bernie Sanders or Rachel Maddow for that. But certainly there is an effect when you sort of ratchet things up like this. Mm -hmm. And I would say the same, by the way, for the Flight 93 election crowd who were who who believed that we were, you know, just the republic was over. We had no choice. We had to embrace the golem. But I think it's because we are writers and we live in Washington that we maybe are more attuned to the resistance to Trump argument. And so how to, first, let's ask this question about like, well, you know, do you think that some of the rhetoric that we've seen in the Atlantic, all this stuff coming up, is, is that maybe raising the stakes in an unproductive way that will have potentially terrible effects down the line?
1: Yeah. So let's, let me, let's just get into it. So first of all, I always think it's, and I've given this advice to young writers for years. Sometimes if you're going to be intellectually honest, you have to disappoint your biggest fans. Sure. And one of the problems with that, one of the problems with not doing that is you end up kind of being a caricature, right? You, if you're, you end up doing fan service. And, you know, and so people are like holding up their lighters saying, you know, do Freebird again. And <laughs> so part of the problem with the Atlantic stuff, and I, I'm going to defend some of the Atlantic stuff in a second, but one of the problems with it is, that entire symposium is exactly what atlantic readers wanted to read it is doesn't mean it's wrong in every regard but it is in 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 a in a at a very high level fan service right this is what they want to hear is that trump will be a dictator and that gives them permission to take all sorts of pres- positions gives them permission to think of themselves as reinhold nemore in every regard right and in much the same way the flight 93 Essay gave a lot of conservatives permission to sort of abandon norms, embrace Alinskyism and all this kind of stuff. And so the, so part of the problem with the Atlantic stuff is, so then there's, again, pundit hat on for a second. It'd be one thing if you thought that those arguments were going to yield the result that you want. And, and again, I am not for sort of advocacy journalism where you move people to, you know, you, you treat them as if they need to be manipulated or propagandized or anything like that. But just on their own terms, if you listen to Jeffrey Goldberg, who I like a lot, you know, and Jeffrey says, I wanted to do this for, you know, to put it all in one place, to remind people, to put it front of center of people's minds and blah, 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 blah. I think it was all high-minded in- intentions. At the same time, it's not necessarily going to have the result that you want because, Look look at this way. Trump was doing very badly in the polls after the 22, 22 midterms. And then he got indicted first by Bragg. That was a garbage indictment. And what it did was it started the process of inoculating Trump from any effort to hold him accountable with the criminal justice system. That was the gateway drug to, to be able to dismiss some of the other indictments, which I think are much more valid. And, but Bragg got what he wanted he got the headlines. He got to say, he got to fulfill literally a campaign promise, you know, and, and so he got out of it what he needed. His fans got out of it what they needed. They got MSNBC got 10,000 hours of great programming out of it, but it actually helped make Trump stronger, not weaker. Similarly, the talk of the dictator stuff, again, regardless of the merits of the arguments. Well, I want to get to the
2: merits after this part.
1: yeah, Yeah. I don't think that it necessarily helps the way they think it does because literally every single person who nods to that p that 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 magazine those arguments or nods to Bob Kagan's piece they already agreed to one extent or another at minimum they already resolved never to vote for Trump to tell all their friends never to vote for Trump so it's not additive to the anti-Trump coalition in any meaningful way while at the same time it reinforces in this negative polarized era the impulses of people who say screw you i'm not going to be manipulated like this you say this crap about every republican president so i'm going to rally around trump you think i'm a philistine i'm going to go and 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 do the middle finger thing to you again by voting for trump and so if you're going to be a just a cold-eyed cynical realist about what you're trying to do regardless of the merit I think it was probably on that counterproductive.
2: OK, but I just want to clarify. I mean, on, I want to just drill down on one point of this. If you really think that Trump will destroy our democracy, will never have a, an election again, he's going to be a dictator. He's going to round up people. He's, you know, millions of people are going to be deported. It's going to be, you know, this totalitarian nightmare or something. Well, if I if I believed the, all of those facts, I would probably support all kinds of things that I wouldn't in any Absolutely. normal political sense. Right. And I already think that, by the way, the Democrats have already done this. They've already done things that they would never have done, even to other Republican presidents that they hated. I don't think you would have gotten a brag indictment, you know, if, I don't know, Dick Cheney may have. I mean, I, I, there's all kinds of figures that the left hasn't liked. And they, there, there was an unprecedented kind of bunch of things that the Democrats did, large and small because they already accepted this premise that Trump was this existential threat to the Republic.
1: Yeah, so look, I I agree with that. I've been writing for years now that one of the problems with having when Trump was president, he was a profound norm breaker. And the problem with norm breakers isn't just the norm breaking, it's the permission they give to other people to break norms, too. And we've seen that all over the place. And, you know, we can argue about the collusion, the Mueller probe or
2: no, I don't um, really want to get into that. I'm just saying. No, no, okay, but the point yeah. is that
1: there are a lot of norms broken in order to stop Trump or undermine Trump. And Trump invited, I have no sympathy for Trump in a lot of ways, because he's one of these guys, norm breaking for me, the rules for the kind of guy. But right. it's still a huge problem for the country and for the system. And, and so no, I agree, there's, there's something, you know, it, it's a little reminiscent of the, the time machine argument would you go back in time and strangle Hitler in the crib, right? right? If you convince people with 100% confidence that Trump will be a dictator and end America, that is maybe not for you or me, and but for a lot of people, that is that is a warrant to do extrajudicial things, which is not good. And or to a,
2: use the judicial system in a yeah. way that you would never do it against another political leader.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. And so, you yeah. know, one of the things I would encourage everyone to have is a little bit of i don't know epistemological humility no one's got a crystal ball, ball. but if you can convince yourself that you have 100 percent clarity about what's going to happen in the future that gives you permission to sort of do whatever it takes by any means necessary kind of thing and maybe it's not assassination maybe it's you know subverting the the legal system and but i think that the essence of sophisticated thinking is to be able to hold multiple propositions simultaneously in your head and understand that they don't necessarily contradict each other. And so, you know, Donald Trump very much wants to abuse the courts, does abuse the courts, right? He breaks and bends rules all the time. And the people who see this, see this as evidence for why they should do it too, but for justice. And what you should really have is like, Faith in the system, faith in elections, and realize that there is no, like, Flight 93 election. There's always another election. There are checks and balances. The system was sort of set up to deal with this, which gets us to the merits. Like, would Trump be a dictator?
2: Yeah, let's Um, let's
1: get into that. So I have a bunch of different thoughts on this. One is, I think it's worth pointing out to people that for all I just said about having perfect, thinking you have perfect clarity about the future... If there's a 25% chance, that's still something to take seriously. You sure. Know. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe 10,000 or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help final resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private, free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her Parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply That's
2: chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah, and yeah well, and you you had a great column on this where you started off, which I th- love it when you make this point. Modern presidents have been just taking all this power that basically Congress has relinquished and they've been we've been governing a lot through executive orders and. That's been a problem. So, you know, you, right. no, nobody paid attention to it. And now it's like, okay, this
1: is. I mean, in a very weird way, Trump's answer about how he'll be a dictator just on day one, his great crime was honesty.
2: Because right. a, that, that,
1: that, that day one promise thing, which has been bugging me for years, it's gotten worse in the last 10 years. But like Democrats and some Republicans, they'll often say, Day one, I will do this. My favorite, Kamala Harris said, you know, on day one, I'm going to repeal Trump's tax cuts. Probably the United States can't repeal legislation unilaterally on day one through executive order. But people tell people, candidates campaign this way. They don't call, they don't say I'll be a dictator, but that's what they're, that's what the actual meaning of what they're saying is, right? So that's an important point. Look, I think I don't, I have more confidence in the American people and our institutions to be able to weather a Trump effort to be a dictator and get past it, that's not an argument for being blasé about it. Like, I, we lost something really important with the loss of being able to say we've always had the peaceful transfer of power. That's bad enough by itself. Similarly, if he tries to violate all sorts of, you know, serious constitutional rules and norms and laws and all that kind of stuff and fails... That's still bad, and it's worth, you know, fighting against. I honestly, I do think, and I, I'm i sincere about this, I think there are people around Trump who have zero problem with the idea of him, in fact, becoming a dictator. And that's bad. The kind of people he wants want, to... Sell, I want to
2: table that because I want to get into this yeah. part about, like, the attendant right-wing uh, people around it, which you, you you you've talked about, you've kind of done battle with for the last four or five years, and... But I want to just say on this dictator point, and Mm I want to pose a question, which is to say I I agree with a lot of what you've just said, but why weren't more people saying January 6th was really bad and it was scary and we shouldn't have it happen again, but you know what? The system worked. Let's pat ourselves on the back. And even somebody like Mike Pence, who you can say went along with too much and he shouldn't have gone along with when he was the vice president, ended up doing the right thing. But it wasn't just Pence. There were lots of people who ended up really doing the right thing and Biden did become, you know, the president. So yes, it was a scare, but the, 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 you know, the safeguards worked. Why, why was that not more in play? And instead it seemed like I felt like was the only thing we were allowed to talk about for almost two years, that and the pandemic.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll push back on that a little bit only insofar as look, I, I think analytically you're largely correct, right? But it shouldn't. It went much further than it should have, and like my position was, there could have been zero violence. Just unleashing a protest mob on the Congress while it's trying to perform its functions to intimidate it, in order to in effect steal an election, he should have been impeached for that. You know, like oh sure, he should have
2: absolutely been impeached. There's
1: no doubt. I mean, we're in agreement on that. Yeah. So so look, I, I think this part of the problem is. Let me, put it, I mean, let me make this, I've never, I've not made this argument this way before, but I think part of the problem is, first of all, the, the easy part to answer is the right didn't want to talk about it at all, right? I mean, they, they were embarrassed by it. The second Lindsey Graham and all those guys sort of lost their nerve and went back to sucking up to Trump, it became the new party dogma that, that, that this wasn't that big a deal and people are blowing it out of proportion. The problem on the left, though, is the left does not have a serviceable vocabulary for talking about America's institutions, about the Constitution. I mean, I think it is really kind of fascinating the way, once you hear it, you can't stop hearing it all over the place. The way, including across mainstream media, people talk use the phrase, our democracy. And they don't say democracy. They don't say constitutionalism. They don't say American democracy. They say our democracy. And I think there's a tell in that. It's like there are these people that were trying to steal power from us, and democracy is supposed to be working the way we like it to be working. And, you know, you try to explain to people this point that we just talked about about executive orders. And, you know, you try to explain to people that what, you know, Trump, I'm mean, not Trump, uh, Obama, you know, spent two years, something like that, 18 months, talking about how he could not do DACA because he was not a king. He was not a monarch. We have a constitution. The president, does, I literally, he was like, literally said like 24 times, I do not have the power to do this. And then Congress screwed him on it. And he's like, all right, I'm going to do it anyway. Now, on his own terms, he said he was violating the constitution right? He was using what Burke or Locke would call arbitrary power to do his will. That should outrage all of these people who are talking about constitutional norms and our democracy and all that kind of stuff, but they can't see it. And the, it's, it's like fish don't know they're wet. When you're doing this stuff for the good things, quote unquote good things, abuses of power don't seem bad. You know, you have Trump, you have, you have Biden with the student loan stuff that, if you actually do a close reading of what the the oh counsel's God. office said and all that, it was simply lawless. And, you know, I, I remember writing when Bush was president that the only impeachable thing he ever did was when he signed McCain-Feingold. He said, I think parts of this are unconstitutional, but we'll let the court work it yeah, out.
2: Yeah, don't sign it then. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, like you take an oath to uphold the Constitution, too, as president. And but liberals love McCain-Feingold. And Partisan Republicans, for the most part, we're just going to get we're going to forgive Bush for it. But there is this inability to understand that the limitations on power have to apply to your own side too, or they're not legitimate legitimate limitations on power. And I think that's one of the problems that that behavior by 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 the left and by Democrats for years is one of the. I mean, I hate the whole genre of this is how you got Trump. But that's how you got Trump, right? This is how you get the flight 93 argument, which is like, look how these people abuse their power. Look how they use the deep state and the bureaucracy to do all of these things that are unconstitutional or illegal or sidestep Congress or whatever. We need our own red Caesar. We need our own guy who will do the same things and be unapologetic about it the way they're unapologetic about it. And so, you know, I, Trump is not the author of all of our problems. He's made a lot of our problems worse, but it was the stuff that came beforehand that made Trump's candidacy poss- and presidency possible is how we're in the crazy place that we're in now.
2: All right. So you, you, this is a perfect segue into, you know, the, the meat and potatoes here, which is that what do you say to, well, let me preface this by saying that I remember in 2017, I did a piece, I went to Berkeley and I, because a group of conservatives invited Milo Yiannopoulos And the question I asked was, why aren't you reading like Jonah Goldberg? I really did ask this. (laughs) And people didn't say necessarily bad things. They just said, well, you know, it was a version of the Jonah doesn't know what time it is kind of Mm -hmm. thing. And I came away with some sympathy in the following sense. This was 2017. And there were maybe what a group of seven conservatives at Berkeley left. Mm-hmm. And th- that were openly talking about how they liked Trump and they thought that we should close the border and things like that, and that there were student groups that put up posters of these college students, their fellow colleagues, all over campus that said "Meet your campus fascists," and they were harassed and they had that you that some of them complained that professors were like egging on these people and they felt like, you know, we we can't get a break here, so that's why we like Milo because mm-hmm. he tells them. He's a huge middle finger to all these you know, snowflakes that are oppressing us and hate us and all this other stuff. So what do you say like, to the argument of people on the right who are not, I mean, I think that there are really, I like your stuff with Vermeule because I think you're, you're getting into important philosophical things. You're a high level thinker, but just on a basic level, the game's rigged against me because I'm pro-life, because I'm religious, because I think we might have to do something about you know, illegal immigration, and I'm not allowed to say any of this stuff. I am treated as pariah. And if I play by the rules, if I'm absolutely perfect, I'm still screwed because it's Calvin ball as far as I'm concerned. So why shouldn't I go for a Trump? Why shouldn't I go for that?
1: So we had this conversation about the unintended consequences of the Atlantic symposium. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh same argument, but applied to a different group. I can have <laughs> Considerable. It depends on the circumstances, right? I mean, I right. always thought Yiannopoulos was a buffoon. No,
2: I, um, I'm, not, I'm not defending Yiannopoulos. You know, I no, just, I know yeah, you're yeah, not. I know right,
1: you're not. Know. But like, you know, so I'm just saying it, it, it depends who we're talking about, right? Yeah. Like Ben Shapiro is defensible. Milo, yeah. Milo is not, right? And I can right. make those distinctions. So I can have sympathy, speaking generically, for the feelings you describe, right? The yeah. we're put upon, we're, disc- we're literally discriminated against we're, we're delegitimized. We're, you know, what is the, what is the Amish word for being excommunicated? We're shunt. Right. Right. <laughs> and th- you know, we're anathematized, whatever. I, I get being angry at that. Question is, what does Milo actually help you win the argument? How does Milo actually help you change things? Because I used to have this, you know, I used to make this point all the time. I used to be a very popular speaker doling out red meat to like Young Americans Foundation and that kind of stuff, right? And even though, and so I, you know, I would dole out the red meat like it was an abattoir. It's fine. But I would also make the point, it's like, look, if you're on a college campus and you're actually trying to accomplish something and not just have a tantrum that makes you feel good, you have to be able to persuade more people than you repel. And there were an enormous number of people 25 years ago when I used to do these kinds of talks, enormous number of people who thought that just being rude for its own sake was worth being rude because it was politically incorrect. Right. And so like you can make art as a transgressive quality to it. Yeah. And I get it, you know, but it's like, you know, you know, Ann Coulter, when she would debate people, I had a friend who used to debate her on college campuses from time to time. He was a liberal and whenever she was like cornered and losing, she would say, why do we have to listen to you? You think it's okay to put forks in babies' heads and went on this rant about partial birth abortion. Now, if you are like a normal student at one of these schools that's interested in conservative you want to hear the other side, and then you see that performative stuff or you see Milo's stuff, is that going to pull you in to the conservative argument or is it going to push you over the fence and make you more liberal? And my argument is, is that you should go back to Aristotle and think about politics as trying to persuade people to join your coalition rather than the coalition that you're in. And the performative middle finger stuff pushes away more people than it attracts. And it may feel good. It may be fun. And there's room for it at the margins, right? I mean, like I'm a funny campus speaker. I'll make jokes and all that. But like, I would worry about I would want to win the debate by winning the median person in the room, not just telling the 20% that are my biggest fans exactly what they wanted to hear. And I think that one of the problems we have in the culture generally, and this is one of these both sides points, and it it, it informs why both the squad and that you know Matt Gates caucus are are deleterious. Forget for our democracy or for getting constructive legislation done. They're bad for their own parties is because we value performative stuff over constructive stuff. We value, you know, we have, we have this sort of loser caucus in the, in the house that would rather lose fights than have partial wins. Because if you lose, you get to say, see, I died on that Hill. I was stabbed in the back because I'm so pure I'm so committed I won't compromise I won't collaborate with the enemy, and the an enormous amount of the performative stuff on the right and the left is is purely about the shock value, and it is not helpful for the actual purpose of the conservative movement, which is to make more people conservative and I used well, to don't have- you think the argument from the
2: you know performative side might be? Yeah, that might have been true when we went to college in the 90s, but it's not true today. And even if I'm the most persuasive, I'm still accused of hate speech. Even if I, you know, I, I, you know, if you, if you wanted to like study the Middle East on most of the, especially the so-called elite schools, there are like no professors left who will give you a balanced history of the region and ditto for all kinds of other versions of history. So it's like the, the march to the institutions that the left is much better at than the right is worse. I mean, I th- I'm, I'm not even necessarily agreeing with the side. I'm not, but I want to try to articulate the argument as I see it. So mm-hmm. that's what I think the, the, you know, does anybody know what time it is crowd is, is there's a kernel there that's true. I mean, I reread So Rob's big against David and piece, which I disagreed with vehemently at the time as a small L liberal. But then I, I said, there are some things in here that you see the roots of this kind of old, unbelievable frustration And I wonder if like that generation on the right is maybe has have they turned away from some of these ideas of Buckley and, you know, for good? Or is it just a matter of they just say things are really bad and we need to fight harder or I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we're on the same page about the problems with universities. Yeah, I know. With with, you know, the sort of transgressive DEI bullshit stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm totally there with you. The question still comes back to me is like, what are you going to do about it? And when you, right. okay. and so when you say we're, we're still losing. And so therefore we got to do X, I need to know what X is. And if X is just having some, let's, let, let's say, let's, let's keep it hypothetical, right? Let's say you're, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right about like Middle East studies on these college campuses. Totally yeah. agree with you. Does that mean you're actually going to do anything to fix that problem if you invite some speaker in who talks about how all Muslims are terrorists, the Arabs are genetically inferior, you know, whatever, right, right? right? So like the point is, is like, it may feel good to really thumb everybody in the eye. But if you actually live down to the left's expectations, Making you're actually for them. solidifying that yeah. you're making them feel more secure in their positions because you are exactly the caricature that they say you are. You're being the fascist that they say you are. One of the great things that William F. Buckley did is got to remember. And I don't think it was all sweetness. And light. I mean, Buckley wrote God and man in Yale. What in 51? Right. Yeah. I mean, like this has been a problem for a long time. But, you know, what people forget is like, I, and I get why, well, oh, William F. Buckley is, you know, this old fogey, and he sounds British, he's got the weird accent, and he used these sesquipedillion words, and I get all that, right? And that's one of the reasons why when I found a national review online, I very much wanted it to be not your father's national review and have Simpson jokes and all that kind of stuff. I get all these arguments. But, and I remember, in the 1960s, the elite mainstream media crowd, which had more power back then, vastly more power than it does today. I mean, this is one of these things that people talk, still talk about the the power of the mainstream media today without realizing that the mainstream media is so much less powerful and so much less hegemonic, Right. right? But they need them to be the villain in their narratives. But regardless, they wanted the prototypical conservative, the conservative, like insert conservative here was George Wallace. Right. And they want him to be a bigot. They want him to be a buffoon. They want him to be a rube who fell off a turnip truck. And here comes, William F. Buckley with his harpsichord playing and his ability to, to beat Kenneth John Kenneth Galbraith and Noam Chomsky in debates, and it gave people a sense that, oh, there's actually we can, be, we can beat them at their own game. we can have better arguments, we can be more civil. We can win that median person over to our side. That's what, William, what Milton Freeman did with Free to Choose. And that approach which yielded real positive things. I'm not saying we didn't win, obviously, but I, I think sometimes people get the causality backwards. They say things have gotten so much worse, and so those sorts of approaches are no longer valid. When in reality, we we moved away from those sorts of approaches, <laughs> and we lost more. And 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 you know, the the rise of culturism, and you know, and and and, and you know the glenn back when he's bad because sometimes he's not right you know that kind of crowd the rise of that stuff i think hastened our losses rather than provided this new front how we're going to beat them back and because one of the things well that but came- some of it was also opting out uh-huh okay and we might
2: be seeing some of that now with higher education but certainly there was a movement for many years where very pious religious christians didn't think that they would ever win in you know against big textbook and you know these state education so they started homeschooling and they started to build their own network of schools and that that's a very american thing as well i kind of admire it in some ways that you know we'll see if we, i guess the verdict is kind of out a little bit on that i mean but but another element though is that for, let's take a, a a more serious policy example as opposed to some someone who's performative entirely like a milo but chris rufo mm-hmm. chris rufo does, in my view, really important work in exposing these DEI handbooks and getting the goods as a just a journalist Mm -hmm. admiring another guy getting information out there. But he's also involved kind of, you know, advocated for policies that get my First Amendment and free speech, you know, radar Mm -hmm. going in the sense that he's saying, you know, in the sense that he he he's like calling for, you know, what could be clearly abused by state bureaucracies to sort of enter into the education. And if you were to go to Chris Ruffin and you were to say, don't you understand that this is, you know, kind of undermining your larger free speech points over here, he would say, yeah, do you know what time it is? Like, mm-hmm. that's because this is what the left does to us, and this is maybe we're going to try, similar to like what Ron DeSantis did with Disney, which, if you just gave me that and I didn't know who the characters were, I said, well, no, I don't think a governor should be able to do that. I like free markets. But then in the context of Florida, and I'm not even defending Brian DeSantis because I think I'm against that. But my point is, is that, that the argument is, is that these kinds of approaches, which start to sort of, you know, push the edges a little bit on some of these things. And that stuff, by the way, I think is going to endure more than the than the than the cult of Trump in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. That's something that seems my, that I think you're correct to spend a lot of time on in your own work. But I, I mean, it seems like those people, maybe I'm wrong, but it feels like they're winning the day. And how do you kind of counter this point of saying, you know, when they say, well,
1: why shouldn't we just do what the left does? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I think it really depends what people mean by that. Right. Fair I mean, enough.
2: That's a good point.
1: Yes. And so, like, I agree with you. Chris Rufo is a mixed bag. Yeah. Some of the stuff that he gets out there, I think, is valuable to get out there and all that kind of stuff. But it's sort of like I I'm trying to think of the right metaphor. The stuff he shines a light on, I think, is a valuable service. The stuff he wants to replace, <laughs> the stuff he shines a light on, <laughs> yeah. I'm much more skeptical, right? And right. and that's fine. It's sort of like, there's a tradition of that in America. You know, the muckrakers, some of the things that they exposed in American industrial capitalism right. was really bad, and it was good that they did it. Some of them were pretty dishonest about it, but that's a different conversation, right? But I, I, in no way, shape, or form would I want Upton Sinclair or... Ida Tarbo, right. <laughs> right, designing what our political economy should look like. No. <laughs> right. And so we can we can maintain some of these sorts of 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 distinctions. And and I think one of the problems we have in our culture is and it's a very human thing is that we think if somebody is 100 percent right on one thing, they have to be 100 percent right on right. other things. Right. And so like right. I get into this argument, I'm sure you've had similar arguments about Martin Luther King. And I would say w- at least once every six months, The Atlantic or the Washington Post runs some op ed calling conservatives hypocrites because we quote his judge people on the contents of their character, not the color of their skin stuff, but we ignore his stuff about foreign policy or economics. And the truth is, he was right about colorblindness as a moral imperative, and he was wrong about like taxation and Vietnam. That's possible. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm 100% right about some things according to, some, to everybody, you know, but I'm right. wrong about a lot of things. And why, and so th- that, that's sort of part of the problem is, is like we want people to be Joan of Arc. And that means that they're anointed by God and they must be right in all things. When in reality, that's not how humans work is that sometimes humans are really right about X and wrong about Y. And so on your broader point, I have really no problem at a at a broad general at a broad level of generalization with being more aggressive at restoring the constitutional order but the goal has to be restoring the constitutional order it can't be they have a philosophy of of overriding the constitution to impo- impose their ideological commitments So we need to have that too. And this is what I think uh, one of the real distinctions between a liberal and a leftist. And it's one of the real distinctions between a conservative and a right winger these days is, you know, and so like to get to this, know what time it is kind of thing. I mean, just, just, just one last point on this. The people who followed the sort of Buckley sort of model, broadly understood most successfully were the Federalist Society, right? Or the conservative legal movement. They overturned Roe took 50 years to do it, but they did it. And, and they also, it wasn't just roads. It was like gun rights. We have, you know, gun rights are far more robust today than they were 50 years ago because of the work of the conservative legal movement. And what the conservative legal movement did was made arguments better than the left. And they fought institutionally with better arguments, with better evidence, and they won the day. And uh, that's the process that's going on with things like your opting out point about school choice is it, it takes time in a democracy. That's not an argument that, and the, the fact that it takes time to win arguments in a democracy is one of the oldest arguments against democracy. When I think it's actually one of the best arguments for democracy is that it takes time to work things out and people, you know, as Edmund Burke said, example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other. Sometimes you have to learn from the mistakes that you make. I am hoping and we can talk about it, but like, I'm hoping that the the, the, the three amigos, you know, a pre, you know, president's testimony from Harvard, Penn, and MIT, people are learning from that, right? And like, oh, there, are yeah. a lot, there are a lot of liberal Jews and, and liberal Gentiles, you know, who were essentially red-pilled by this. And they're like, all right, if DEI cannot have a rule against, you know, rampant anti-Semitism, why should I take DEI seriously? And I think that it'll take time. There'll be all sorts of. There're going to be victories and there're going to be losses, but that's how it takes. If you're going to, there were a lot of victories and losses for the left when they did their long march through the institutions, and there's going to be a lot of victory and losses for us to clear them out and and get back to something better. That's that's life. And
2: how much how much of this is affected by something that isn't necessarily political or ideolo- ideological, but it is a sense of, you know, I don't know, despair about how there isn't much of a future now in America. You know, you, you know, the home ownership numbers, there's all kinds of these things about like, you know, the current Gen Z kids are like looking at the horizon of their life and they're saying, we're on the decline and there aren't as many opportunities available for me. This is going to be a generation maybe that doesn't, you know, have more prosperity than their uh, parents. I mean, it strikes me that if, if if that attitude sinks in even if it's not reflected by the reality, that really opens up a lot of space for both the left and the rightist and and away from the conservatives and the liberals.
1: Well, I agree with that entirely. And you know, yeah. and there's I mean, not not the get- all highfalutin here, but you know, despair is a sin in Christian teaching. And specifically, it's a sin because, Despair, I can't remember where the Latin roots are, but th- the reason despair is a sin is it's the belief that you are beyond saving by the grace of God, that God is powerless to improve right. your lot, right? That you cannot be saved. And so it's a sort of a denial of God. Now, I'm not making a theological argument here, but despair in a secular democratic society has a similar valence insofar as you are basically saying, this system, which has done more to improve the lot of mankind than any other system in human history is no longer adequate. So what I need to do is, is, is dustbin the whole thing and go back to some medieval or prehistoric form of social organization based on tribe or king or, or, or autocrat and, I, I think that's terrible. That doesn't mean we don't have real problems. I mean, I think you're right about the despair part of it. But, you know, the, and I, I you know, I have this, I've had this long standing argument or, or view that one of the reasons why the DEI stuff or intersectionality, whatever label we're supposed to put on that stuff, right, is so much more pernicious and omnipresent today than it was even 20 years ago is because of the way we raise kids, right? So like there was political correctness when you and I were in college, right? And then depending on how you define the term, there's political correctness. It's funny
2: you say that because when we were in college, there was political correctness. But I also remember I was pretty, I was far more liberal in college, but I remember that there kids who were into political philosophy and politics liked to debate each other. Right. And that seems completely missing today.
1: Right. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. And so like the, and that's sort of my point is that, and that's political correctness could be mocked. Like that was, that was a big part of the whole thing. You're not allowed at least until this month to mock DEI in the same way. And I think it's very healthy that we're starting to mock DEI in the same way. But the reason, so like there have always been ridiculous neo-Marxist, cultural Marxist, whatever labels we want to use, right? women's studies professors and and afrocentrism prof- Leonard Jeffries types they've been around forever they got their tenure and and they needed to encourage weird campus controversies to get kids to sign up to take their classes because their classes were boring and they couldn't get you a job right the difference now is that we and this is a very this is a Jonathan Height Lukyanov kind of point where We have raised the generation of kids. I see it in my, my daughter's own cohort, right? Where because of the zero tolerance for bullying stuff and I'm against bullying, right? But like this whole idea, we've the hyper safetyism where we've raised kids to think that if they're ever made to feel uncomfortable for any reason, that's an out moral outrage. And, and, part of that comes with the fact that you have kids at elite schools in particular, and most of the problems we're talking about are elite problems, right? Yeah. The top 200 schools that are the, where this is a problem at all, and even that's probably too big a number. These kids, they're raised where they, they, they can't run around outside on their own. Out, their entire lifestyles are sort of designed bespoke where they have tutors and personal coaches and all these kinds of things. And on the playground, if there is a conflict, they're trained to go find some adult third-party intercessor who will come in and adjudicate things. And so they don't learn how to reconcile differences or deal with scary ideas or concepts or anything from a very early age. So you got these kids who are raised like this, and by the time they get to college, it is part of their character, their, their character formation from a very early age Tells them if they're made to feel uncomfortable, that needs to be remedied. And so, of course, you're going to get things like trigger warnings and all that kind of stuff because the hyper-safetyism has created a different kind of kid. The way you fix that is get rid of that garbage and go back to like when I was a kid. I grew up in New York City in the 1970s and 80s. It was not a safe place. I was still, my parents still said, make sure- Did you see the
2: Guardian Angels guys with the berets (laughs) on the subways?
1: Hey, look, (laughs) (laughs) Death Wish was was filmed in my oh, yeah. neighborhood, right? Yeah. You know, and so like my parents still said, you know, you have to come back for dinner when the streetlights turn on, right? And the idea that I would even do that with my own kid is kind of bizarre to me now, but that's part of it because I've been sort of pulled into that culture too, to a certain extent, and I have to correct myself all the time about it. And so I think that the reason why, de- and anyway, this gets me to my bigger point about the DEI stuff. And was the point of my book, *Suicide of the West*, is we teach kids, at a level, at a very high level of sophistication, to be ungrateful, to be to convince them, you know, it's in the application process in a lot of these schools, find this way to define yourself as a marginal oppressed person, and make that the centerpiece of your identity, and we teach kids, in all of these schools, that the institutions are structurally racist that even, and and not just institutions like, you know, government institutions or higher ed institutions, like we teach people that the nuclear family is this racist institution or this patriarchal institution that needs to be undone. And that's a it's a 70 year project. Now we teach kids at a certain level that if they do well in school and work hard, they're acting white, which I think is just so profoundly evil. And I think this is one of the reasons why you have the anti-Semitism stuff come out so much is that the Jews undermine the oppressor narrative to such a degree that they're kind of seemed as traitors to the narrative. And, and that's why you got to get rid of all the DEI stuff and the intersectionality stuff, because it's, they, they, they pretend that it's a part of your education, your conventional education, when it really, it's a part of the moral education and it's a perverse and pernicious form of moral education because to teach kids that they have no agency, that's how you teach them to have despair, right? If you just think you're a right. piece of flotsam on the winds so, right. of late capitalism and then late capitalism is going in a bad direction, well then, of course, you should despair because you have no power over your own life to fix anything. And so we're teaching despair. And the way you remedy that is to stop friggin' teaching it.
0: Step into the world of power
2: Now, given the trends right now in the political parties, this seems like almost like a fight among the elites. And then there's this huge, um, enormous structural shift in the parties where you have Republicans now representing the working class and not just the white working class, but people maybe who didn't go to college, have no idea necessarily about these debates. Yet I remember 2015, the primary debates, people were talking about Halloween costumes at Yale. Mm hmm. And it was like this was something that electrified uh, the Republicans. And yet it's it's kind of strange that it's this party now that have people who really don't maybe don't go to college. What explains that? Is that just is that just pure resentment of a kind of corrupted and failed elites, which you hear a lot of, by the way, from the what time is it crowd? Right. Or is it something else? Is it like there still is this aspirational thing where, you know, smart kids from, from working class backgrounds can go to college and yet, you know, they're, they're going to be discriminated against or something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, I, I think it's a, I think there's just a lot of different things that contribute to a phenomenon, right? And so you can, you can talk about it as a matter of punditry about how, you know, Trump not destroy the FDR coalition, but he hastened its demise, right? the, you know, my colleague Rui Teixeira and John Judas have this book which is a little bit of a kind of like you know, it's not a mea culpa but it's like hey you guys you took our last book way too seriously kind of thing, right? <laughs> and and so like, you know, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, their their book from 2002 was this emerging democratic majority book which was perfectly timed to be overinterpreted by the left. And so the left took this as essentially secular astrology that demography is destiny because of their ideological assumptions that people of color have to vote Democratic, they took people of color kind of for granted, and they wrote off the white working class, which was still, which is still today, the biggest block of the electorate, and white people are still two-thirds of the electorate. But you got all of this rhetoric from these these Nimrods about how, and I don't, I'm don't, i not calling Judas and Teixeira Nimrods because that wasn't actually their argument, right? They're very much like New Deal liberals, They were like, you got to hold on to a big chunk of the white working class, and add these other people in. And instead, because Obama had this amazing success by by expanding, you know, his coalition and and turning up the the youth and minority parts of the electorate, it was like, aha, it's true. And they started to buy into all the language about white supremacy and all that. And weirdly enough, it turns out that if you say yes, all white people are racist you're going to get fewer white votes. It's just, it's one of those things, right? And, there's, <laughs> and it, there's also this amazing amount of, you know, from good progressive social scientists, and including, you know, not just Jonathan Shait, but Sherry Berman and these other people have written that the more you call people racist, the more likely you're going to make them racist. And its it's actually a very normal human phenomenon, right? Because like, you, Your dad fought in World War II. You want to be proud of him for fighting in World War II, right? Your great-great-grandfather fought on the side of the Union Army in the Civil War. And yeah. you're being told that all white people are racist or all white people are bigots or all white people are bad. And you're like, wait a second. My grandpa was a good guy. My dad's a good guy. I'm a good guy. But if, 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 if I'm not going to be judged for the content of my character, why should I play that game too? And so you get this sort of psychological permission structure that encourages this stuff. And that's why I do think the right has a much bigger racism problem today than it did 10 years ago and and the left deserves a cuz identity politics is just bad period right yeah and what identity politics does is it creates an incentive structure for people who don't like identity politics to embrace identity politics and you should just get out of it and so i mean I, and so like so some of it is just sort of the different coalitions have changed but there's also you know like i remember it used to really surprise people when i would tell people the reason why George W. Bush in 2000 embraced Colin Powell so much wasn't because he thought it was going to win him a lot of black votes. It's because he wanted to reassure a lot of suburban white voters that the GOP wasn't racist. People don't want to be racist and and they don't want to be accused of racism. And particularly college educated people come from that sort of environment where like, they don't want to be associated with the racist party. And And so a lot of the cultural signaling is geared at that sort of self-conception rather than like actual issues and then there's just all sorts of other stuff going on i i think you'll agree with me to some extent issues just don't freaking matter right now right you can't i mean like it's amazing to watch yeah you know people you know like you cannot hold trump accountable to any position because he changes his positions all the time no one gives a rat's ass right Policy just doesn't matter as a major political issue, particularly for Trump, but also just as a, as, a, as a signaling thing. It's really just sort of like, whose tribe are you on? And that has all sorts of repercussions down the, down the line for how our politics works. All right, well, I want to ask, let me close it on this,
2: because I lo- I, one of the reasons I really like reading you and the dispatch is because it, you don't take the easy road. It's, it's in this in, in 2023, it's very easy to say I'm Trump or I'm all the all down the line anti Trump. And I like not having to always be forced into one of those boxes, which is one of the reasons I like the dispatch. So, but you know, it seems that as we're looking at what you know looks like the very, very likely chance that Trump is the Republican nominee, why didn't more people who could see that Biden was so weak for 2024? And could see that Trump was strong. push for like a third party. And I know that third parties have a very bad history. They never win. But this seemed to be the one time when it had a shot. And is some of that because, to kind of close the loop, they always believed that, you know, if you think Trump's a dictator, then you don't want to muck around with it at all. And you, you might as well just get behind Biden, anyone but Trump. But did we lose an opportunity maybe to get ourselves out of the mess?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, I, I I think, first of all, thank you for the kind words about The Dispatch. Yeah. But I think, remember that scene in Scent of a Woman where Al Pacino does, you know, at, you know Scent of yeah. a Woman was the ap- apotheosis of Hoo-ah. Al Pacino's uh, success of going back to overacting school, right? Yes. So he's got this thing at the end yeah. where he says, throughout my life, I've been at the crossroads. I've known what the right decision was. And I never did it because it was too damn hard, right? <laughs> right, yeah, right. I think about that all the time. There are so many moments in the last. Pick your time frame: five years, ten years, twenty years, where it will be obvious. I mean, I, look. I mean, we, you told me there'd be no Hegel on here, so like Minerva's owl flies at dusk, right? But like, I know things are more clear. Wisdom is clearer in hindsight, right? Sure, okay, yeah. but like, it should. We we we. The weakness of our political parties, which I know I'm a broken record on, creates constant collective action problems where, you know, you go back to 2016, we had the belling the cat problem, right? Where in Aesop's fable, I think it's Aesop, the, it is in the interest of all the mice to put a bell on the cat, but it is not in the individual interest of any one mouse to be the one to put the bell on the cat because you'll right. likely die trying. And so we saw in 2016, all the Republicans attacking each other because none of them, they were waiting for the same day as ex Machina. they're waiting for now, that Trump will fade or drop out or whatever, and then I'll be left to take the lane, right? We're seeing the same thing now between Nikki and and Ron DeSantis. If you had strong, robust parties that did not outsource the picking of candidates to the most turned on, red-pilled and blue-pilled voters... They would never would have let Bernie Sanders run as a Democrat. They never would have let Donald Trump into the into the party. And the and and they would not have let Joe Biden run again. They would have said, hey, wait a second. You told us you were going to be a bridge to a new generation of leaders. You told us that your primary job was to stop Trump. Mission accomplished. Let's get someone in there who can who's fit for the job because you're not right. I mean, that would be a mean, hard conversation to have. But there's no party to do that, right? Nixon resigned because party leaders, you know, right. Goldwater and Bush and these guys that went up to the White House and said, you're screwed. We're not going to, we can't get your back. You don't
2: have enough votes and I'm one of them or something. Like what yeah, Goldwater and, said it, and That's so he's great. like, screw yeah. it,
1: I'm done. We now, because of social media, the decline of mainstream media, all sorts of the weakness of the parties, no one can have that conversation. It's sort of like we're both witnessing right now the, there's this amazing thing where you talk to like nice Serious liberal you know people saying, "Why can't all the donors just get together and put them put their money behind some candidate? Now it's turned out to be Nikki, right? to one extent or another, and stop Trump. The problem is the premise of the question assumes that the issue is money. Yeah. like it's not money. like there are no part there's no one behind the door running everything. There is no establishment. This is one of the this is I mean, we didn't get too deep into the know what time it is kind of thing. But part of my problem with all those guys, is, and I have many, is they're play acting. They are right. pretending right. Right. like there is yeah. this huge, powerful, monolithic establishment. And I, I think I think both of us agree there is something that can be called the deep state. It just doesn't operate in some star chamber where they're all like manipulating things, right? No, I,
2: I I did like a super deep dive over the summer that took a lot of work to try to make the point. There is a deep state, but there are human institutions with lots of people who disagree within them right. and different factions, and it's you cannot attribute a monolithic, you know, Absolutely. agenda. Right, right. It's,
1: and, it's, and 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 part of my problem with all those kinds of conspiracy theories is they almost always end up being anti-Semitic <laughs> because once you convince yourself that there's well, a well, I have group- some
2: Jewish friends. I'm sure we know people who are Jewish who are on the know what time it is side, and. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like this. I I wanted to have this conversation in part because I wanted to try to give the one part of the argument, or the part of what they were getting at, where I have some sympathy, some credit, because I do think that there is something to be said, not just on college campuses in general. I mean, you talked about gun rights, mm-hmm. and I'm in agreement. And I think you know, Antonin Scalia did a great service in many ways, and this was one of them, but. You know it doesn't stop you know like if if there was a way in which the democrats could get more bureaucrats in the eight whatever they would figure out a way it doesn't really matter and that even though you're right like technically there are more gun rights it doesn't stop like kathy Hochul and these other people from saying we're going to do more gun control and you know whether sure. it's the constitution yeah. will be damned and you know so there is a sense of i mean i'm just saying there's a sense of like well you know the old politics we can win and still lose um, for sure Look. But, yeah. but, look
1: I mean, I want to be really clear about this. It was ever thus. Yeah, I agree with that too. Yeah. And so like when you brought up despair earlier, right? I mean, T.S. Eliot has this famous line where he says, there's no such thing as a truly one cause because there's no such thing as a truly lost cause, right? That's, this is the life we have chosen as a people is... In a democracy, you're, you know, Reagan used to say you're only one election away from one generation away from tyranny because we're not born with a love of democracy in us. And that's one of the reasons I hate the DEI stuff, because it teaches kids to think that that democracy is and the constitutionalism is is a dead letter. And now you get a lot of radicals on the right who are teaching the exact same thing. The only way is, you know, the the only way to ride a bike is to keep pedaling. Right. The only way for a shark not to drown is to keep swimming. The only way to keep a democracy going is to keep doing the democracy stuff. And so I have, look, I mean, I reviewed Patrick Deneen's book. I agree with a lot of his concerns about the current state of America. I agree with a lot of the know what time it is people, but they make the exact same mistake the left makes, which is to think that there's somebody running the show, that there's somebody pulling the strings and that we need to be the people pulling the strings and then we will get all of our hearts desires and it's a form it's a dark form of utopianism because that's just not how it works in a democracy democracy is about arguments democracy is about persuasion democracy is about temporary victories and temporary defeats and the Manichaean catastrophizing becomes self fulfilling and yes. you talked about you there talked you about go. the violence thing right so i agree with you that the dictator talk can create a permission structure for violence so can the talk about how there's going to be violence, right? So, like, Tucker you know, Carlson recently told Megyn Kelly that they have to drop all of these criminal cases against Trump because if they don't, there'll be, be blood in the streets. Now, one of the reasons why those guys came on January 6th to fight was they'd been told that the other side was ready to fight. And that's why they clung to this idea for a long time, and some still friggin' believe it that the January six people were really in Mufti Antifa and black lives matter people. Right. And that our side would never do anything like this. If you th- it's like the shootout of the okay corral, if you're convinced that the other side is a hair trigger away from shooting you, it gives you permission to preemptively shoot first. And all of this talk about how we are on the brink of civilizational collapse about how we are on the brink of the end of democracy. And so therefore we- Any means are justified because flight 93, hoo-ha. The more you convince people of that lie, the more it becomes true. And that's why you have to push back on it and say, no, look, I mean, I used to have a contest where I used to tell people, I'll give you $1,000 if you can find a sentence where I praised Hillary Clinton. And because people would say, you must love Hillary because you don't like Trump. No, I dislike both of them intensely. But that doesn't, you know... Hating Hillary does not make Trump right. And hating Trump does not make Hillary right. And this is why my podcast is called The Remnant, because right. no, I just, know I'm on yeah. the sidelines of a lot of this stuff. And all I can do is tell the truth as I see it. And people hate that.
2: Getting back to the Trump prosecution stuff. He is running. It's if we were to believe the polls and we'll find out soon enough if he is the nominee and the choice of, you know one of our two political parties, I don't know, I'm really uncomfortable with gag orders and, and, and this co- co- collision of things. And my issue, to sort of state it as modestly as I can, is that it seems that the people who were just cheering on and applying social pressure to the justice system to indict Trump were unaware that there were millions of Americans who supported him and there could have been this other problem. And I would make this argument and people would say to me, well, then you don't really believe in the rule of law. No, I do believe in the rule of law. I just think that making such a thing as prosecutorial discretion. And there is a sense that, I mean, also, if you combine this with what we're learning about Hunter Biden, although he was just indicted, you know, it's hard to make the argument that there isn't a double standard. And it's not an excuse for what Trump did. And it's not making an argument on all of the cases against him. And it's not saying it's that January 6th was OK or was a setup. But I find I'm much more sympathetic to the argument. Not that I mean, I think it's irresponsible for Tucker to say there'll be blood in the streets. Let me get that out of it. But there is something about it saying, wait a second, there's a bunch of, millions of people who support this guy and they're going to basically say, we're going to we're going to negate your choice. That right there is an anti-democratic sentiment. And it seems that the people who are pushing that on the other side are unaware of it.
1: Yeah. So, uh, I'm going to agree and disagree with that. I agree with you entirely that this situation to use a term from political science sucks. Yes. In fact, <laughs> um, yes, as, it does. As, as Bart said of old faithful, it both sucks and blows. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. At the same time, I have a real, just to to, to sort of steel man the other side of this, I agree with you, all sorts of drawbacks and problems with this situation. At the same time, I have a real problem with someone running for president in order to avoid being criminally prosecuted. And that has real moral hazard to it as well. I would not have brought the brag thing, been consistent on that. I would have edited down some of the other indictments, but like on the classified documents thing, you can't. Make the argument that what Hillary did was disqualifying for public service and not have a similar argument or at least deal with the strength of the argument <laughs> that what Trump did was worse.
2: Yeah, but and that applies to the other
1: side, too. For sure. Yeah, again, okay, okay. they all in, suck. In I mean, I'm, not, okay, yeah, I'm right. not defending any side here, right? Yeah, yeah, but this know, is sort know, of right? my point is like yeah. I'm, I'm willing to tolerate half of the equation of all whataboutism. Yes. My only point is, is that the whataboutism does not justify the thing you're trying to distract me from by whataboutism, whatabouting, where it's like, we get what, I mean, you know this history better than I do. You know, the term whataboutism was actually coined to describe a Soviet propaganda technique, right? right? Where they would, you'd point out, oh, you have the gulag and they say, yes, and they hang Negroes in the South. Right. Hanging Negroes in the South is bad, right? Lynching Negroes is bad it doesn't make the gulag good. Right. And so for me, I'm just sort of like, yeah, this is a terrible situation and we're going to have to back out of it. And they're going to be downsides, but that is part of conservative philosophy. But there has to be
2: like, there, you can be responsible and say, you know, I, I, I agree with you. The blood in the streets is, re- I have a real problem with that because it it's, but it's, it's a little like the mafia. You have a really nice store here. I would to do anything happen to it, but just pointing out like, you know, I don't think people should retain classified documents when the FBI asks for them back, but this right here is going to have a lot of effects if we really thought this through. And I think I also think that, you know, the Merrick Garland Justice Department, it's not, it, I, I hate when people say it's totally corrupt, you can't accept anything from it. I've seen enough evidence that there is some politicization there, particularly sure, okay. with what we've learned from the, from the Hunter Biden stuff. I know enough history to know it's not the first time by any stretch lots of justice departments have been political but when if
1: you're gonna lord knows trump wanted his justice department that's what i'm saying i trump
2: wanted it too but if you're gonna if you're gonna you know say you know in in the fifth version of the essay for the atlantic that the trump's gonna use the justice department to go after his political enemies
1: i want to say in response look in the mirror yeah no that's fair that's fair but like there's, there's all, and it's a very difficult thing to talk about. And I, yeah, you, know, you're, you struggle with this the same way I do. You yeah. may reach different conclusions from time to time, but like, it's, it's a very difficult thing to talk about. About how it's sort of like the Seinfeld where Jerry says he's returning the coat for spite, right? And yeah. the clerk is like, "I'm sorry, we can't. You can't return it." And he says, "Well, I, all right, I just don't like it." He says, "No, no, I'm sorry. You already said spite, so you can't return it for spite, right?" <laughs> right, right, right. And there is a difference. <laughs> You know, I'm the one who made the point about executive orders and all that kind of stuff. There's just a there is a real difference how you score it. Reasonable people can disagree. But when Trump is honest and says, I'm going to be a dictator. That's different than not thinking you're going to be a dictator, even though by some objective criteria you are. When Trump says, I'm going to use the Justice Department to go after the vermin. Um, he's saying the quiet part out loud and getting, you know, rhetoric is rhetoric matters. Oh, yeah. And and so part of my problem with the Trump stuff is when he says this stuff, it causes people to and including the know what time it is crowd to embrace the worst, the the honest version of the worst positions in a way that at least when Democrats do terrible things that should be called out and held accountable for and all of that kind of stuff, they are at least, in, I think, sincerely framing it as consistent with the rule of law and all these kinds of things. They're just wrong, right? And Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, let me put it like this.
2: I, I don't, I, I don't want to geek too much out on this, but Andrew Weissman, in his memoir about his time as you know Mueller's deputy, bragged about going down to the... To the Foreign Agents Registration Act Office in the Justice Department, and, and saying, How come you guys never, you know, pursue criminal investigations? Well, I'm going to start doing that now for the first time in 40 years. And mm-hmm. they did. Okay. And then, and, and, and it was, I, I believe that was a norm violation. More importantly, I think it was, you know, usually there's a process where we're going to enforce the law differently. And not, none of that was done. And then we find out that the statute of limitations for what would have looked to me like a pretty clear case of unregistered foreign agency with Hunter Biden was just allowed to expire and he's not being charged with any of it. That's not an excuse for a lot of, it's not an excuse for Trump. It's not an excuse for any of that. But, you know, I see that side of the people who kind of like to wrap themselves. They talk about the rule of law, but they come pretty close to basically saying, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna find what we can to kind of get you. And that's sort of what they did, I think.
1: Yeah, okay. I, I I think that's fair. I am not up to speed on, on no, the, fair the, enough. I mean, I don't. I didn't mean the, to the, like the weeds on you. some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, I, as a general proposition, I agree with you. I'm a rule of law guy. It should be applied uniformly. If you yeah. make exceptions, it's sort of like you know we're all for free speech except for gassing the Jews, right? That's right. That, that does right. not apply <laughs> Right, <with> me, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and but so like, let me let me tell you just where I'm at in my head, okay? Okay. And like, regardless of let the heavens fall, right? Yeah. I care a lot about conservatism. My entire professional life has been dedicated to caring about conservatism care. I've always cared less about the Republican party than I care about conservatism, but it really wasn't until the rise of Trump that I saw any major tension between the two. Okay. The, I think this country needs a conservative movement that is actually conservative that and conservatism in America, going back to the... I've been,
2: preservation of liberty.
1: Preservation of liberty, maintaining the constitutional order, and all that kind of stuff. I am used, I'm a com- I, I, I am acclimatized.
2: By the way, I just want to say, I love that you did not just decide to just be the American conservative guy, and you've spent this recent... I don't know how many years you've been doing it, but I, I listen very closely and read you closely... Into like the history of German and, and continental conservatism, and that I just love that you have kind of kept going. I like that a lot.
1: Anyway, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yes. I mean, it, I I I I've chosen a life where I get to lean into my nerdery. So, yeah. but the the country, I'm I'm I am used to the left arguing for a limit for a living constitution. Yes, I am used to the left making arguments about politics as as the crow flies, as Michael Elkshire might put it, right? About just using power re- regardless of constitutional norms and democratic norms and all these kinds of things. I think this country desperately needs some group of people. We can call them liberals if the liberals keep splitting off from the left, right? But for simply terminological reasons, we've called these people conservatives for the last 150 years. And you need a conservative movement to defend the founding, defend traditional morality, to defend limited government. And if you have, so I, well, I can agree with you about the hypocrisy and the frustration that comes with fighting with one hand tied behind your back. And I, that's basically the essence of Sorab's David Frenchism stuff. At the same time, what the hell are we doing here if we're not fighting for those things and if you have basically a right and a left, forget Republican and Democrat, forget conservative and liberal. If you just have a right and a left where they're both both voluptuaries of state power and they just want to impose their vision, regardless of the rules, it's like having a car with no brake pedal and two gas pedals. Right. And it's incredibly dangerous. And so part of I, the life I have chosen is to make these arguments about conservatives not going wobbly, even when... There are real drawbacks to that in the day-to-day struggles of politics that can be maddening, that can make you say, hey, let's get that Milo guy on campus or whatever. But that's my orientation. And the frustration I get is from people, I'm not in remotely accusing you of this, but I get a lot of pressure from people for years now saying, that's all fine and good, but we're losing. And part of my argument has to be, we're not losing as much as you think we are, right? guns, abortion. You can go down a long list of things. And, and even if we're losing some of these things are worth fighting for because they're right. You know, like I've, I used to end speeches when I was in good color in good favor on the right. I always used to do this sort of rousing thing where I would say, look, be happy warriors, because you're always going to be outnumbered by people who don't understand the market, who think the government should just impose solutions as as they as the experts say they can, that they don't really like freedom for people they don't like, and and they just want to use power as they see fit. That is the way our brains are wired evolutionarily. And the and you should be happy warrior because you're on the side of human liberty, you're on the side of the only the only real anti-poverty program that has ever worked in human history, which is liberal democratic capitalism. And you were on the side of this argument that says our rights come from God, not from government. We are citizens, not subjects. And the fruits of our labors belong to us. And that's a good and noble thing to fight for, even when a lot of people on your own team have given up. And that's, I, I, I say this a lot on my podcast, as you probably recall, I've never been more politically homeless. I have never been more ideologically grounded. And I get on the day-to-day pundit arguments, on the day-to-day, like win-lose, their side's winning this one. They put more points on the board than I did, whatever. I'm still a fan of like defending the rules of the game. And if you, that's why the the election stealing thing was so friggin bad and why the parties, were the, the Republican Party was so derelict. If Major League Baseball allowed a team to say I don't care what the scoreboard says we won. The game is over. Right? right? Baseball no longer works. If we live in a country where you no longer respect elections and election results. Um look, you can go to the replay, you can go to courts and say this is bad or whatever. That's fine. But at the end of the day, if you don't respect elections that you lose, you don't respect elections period. And that's a huge problem. If you if you use the other side's misdeeds to justify your own you don't actually think they're misdeeds anymore. You just don't think the Constitution sh- should constrain you. Yeah, and, and don't give me argument. like an
2: ancillary argument about Twitter and Facebook suppression of the New York Post and say, that's what you mean by this. No, stop it. Right. Just stop it. it that I agree that was bad, but don't, especially since it's like the imprecision of it, because now it means so many things. You can talk to people, and then sometimes you get of get to this point, you're like, wait a second. You're not saying that there was this, you know, 7000 mules or whatever it was you're saying this other thing that happened in august right. and i'm like enough there are, i can go back to plenty of elections in american history and i can show you nixon probably should have won in 1960 it doesn't mean like you can't you right. can't play this game so uh, we're on a, 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 a that's a great place to end it i guess because we're in agreement as Really great conversation, Jonah. Thank you so much for doing it. it Delighted is, uh, to do it. I'm a big a fan of yours. I know you've I'm been big saying fan all the of yours, nice yeah. things
1: about me, but I'm a huge fan. Always have been. And uh, yeah, this was great.
2: And I and I just want to just emphasize here that you know, please, you know, you should read Jonah, not, and, and you will maybe disagree with him. That's okay. But you should understand he's coming from a really serious. He, he Jonah takes the time to think it through. He's straight with his opinions, and it's a is important. And I and for me, like you've been a real help i always like to i need to check in with you and a few others because again i i'm turned off a little bit by the all right i guess we're democrats now crowd and we yeah, know what yeah, we're yeah i'm with about, you, you, you know, on that i mean yeah
1: i have not gone jen rubin on you i promise no i know i know that's what
2: i mean it's like you know all right anyway thanks again Joe. this was great